The Spaniards must have been astonished. The four of them, led by Captain Diego de Acaraz, were out near the current town of Sinaloa, Mexico. The year was 1536. And before them, a numerous company of some 600 natives. Alcaraz and his men greedily saw the chance to put the lot of them into bondage and servitude. But this company also had four men leading it. Though dressed in native garb and tattooed, they were clearly not from the Amerindian tribes Alcaraz and his men were accustomed to dealing with. Their skin, though tanned from years of toil under the sun, was lighter, except for one, who was black. The biggest shock of all came when the foremost of these four men hailed them in perfect Spanish. And boy, did he have a story to tell. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you're listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 5, A Priest, a Slave, and a Conquistador Walk into a State. Our story today begins in 1492. Kind of, sort of. As you no doubt remember from school, that's the year that a Genoese navigator named Christopher Columbus set sail from Castile in modern-day Spain in an attempt to reach Eastern Asia, using some pretty faulty calculations about the circumference of the Earth. After a two-month voyage, his three-ship fleet spotted land on October 12th, landing on an island in the Bahamas, thus inadvertently setting off one of the largest colonizations-slash-invasions in history. Now, like skipping the opening credits in a show you're binge-watching, we're going to fast-forward through the next couple decades. Columbus would lead three more voyages, eventually reaching mainland South and Central America on the third and fourth trips. Settlers and other explorers would follow in his wake, with everyone eventually coming to the realization that this was not the East Indies, but sweet mother potato, there was a lot of land here. It didn't seem to bother them much that most of it was previously occupied by a wide variety of Amerindian peoples with diverse languages, cultures, and customs of their own, but what are you going to do? Let's pause at 1513. In that year, a man named Juan Ponce de Leon did something that would have far-reaching ramifications and also sort of, kind of, contribute to our study of Arizona's history. Ponce de Leon was among the 200 Hidalgos and Caballeros, minor nobles and gentry, who signed up to follow Columbus on his second voyage in 1493. The 19-year-old from northern Spain had already seen military action in his native country before immigrating to Hispaniola, the island now split between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Once there, he would prove himself to be a survivor, not only in making it through the rough early years of setting up a self-sufficient colony, but in navigating some of the more complex politics of the time. You see, after Columbus was ousted from the governorship of the island in 1500 on charges of cruelty and tyranny, Ponce de Leon managed to ingratiate himself with the new governor. And following a stint in a bitter war with the native Taino population, spoiler, they don't fare so well, Ponce de Leon managed to get himself named lieutenant governor. Over the next decade, further adventuring would see him set up settlements, explore, conquer, and eventually be installed as governor of the island of Puerto Rico. That is, before some internal Spanish politics turned the island over to Columbus's son in 1512. So Ponce de Leon offered to go out a conquering again in the name of the crown of Castile. That's important as it essentially aligned the accomplished conquistador with the crown rather than with Columbus's family in an acrimonious political dispute between the two sides. King Ferdinand took him up on the offer and granted a patent to search northward for the mythical land called Bimini. Unfortunately for good storytelling, there is no evidence that he was looking for the fabled Fountain of Youth, 
though it is a pretty certain fact that he knew of the legend. So in March 1513, Ponce de Leon set sail from Puerto Rico. And this is the voyage that on April 3rd, 1513, would see him land on a beach, where he claimed the new stretch of land for the crown and named it for the recent Easter holiday, or Pascua, Florida. That's right, somewhere just south of Daytona Beach, Ponce de Leon brought the first recorded Europeans to North America and the present-day continental United States. Alright, let's press fast forward again. Because six years after Ponce de Leon landed in Florida, another man decided to have a go of it to the west. Hernán Cortés, the conquistador, landed in Mexico in 1519 and found the Aztec Empire. He then proceeded to ally with enemies of and dissidents inside the empire and brought it crashing to the ground through, in the words of minor podcasting deity Mike Duncan, a, quote, combination of treachery, gunpowder, smallpox, and measles. Others would look at Cortez's success, the land he grabbed and the riches he found, and think to themselves, I would like to get in on that action. Cortez would set the tone for a generation, with some who followed trying to emulate him, while others flat out trying to outdo him. And that's an important point, because as David J. Weber points out in his book, The Spanish Frontier in North America, the various Spanish kingdoms might have been in a better position to take over the Americas in the 15th and 16th centuries than others in Europe. The Spanish kingdoms were riding high, militarily and patriotically. In 1492, the same year that Columbus set off on his seemingly quixotic quest, the Christian Spaniards finally realized a dream 700 years in the making. That spring, they evicted the final Islamic Moors from Spain, capping off a project known as Reconquista, the Reconquest, which began after the Muslims came crashing into the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century AD. During Reconquista, Spanish rulers would commission Adelantados, which were entrepreneurs who on their own dime put together personal armies to campaign against the Muslims. If they succeeded, an adelantado could expect titles or land grants, the rights to rule conquered lands, and whatever spoils of war they could find. This system, of course, encouraged ambitious and predatory individuals looking to move up in the world. This is the tradition that men like Ponce de Leon, Cortes, and, as we will see, Coronado, were following and brought with them to the New World. Also, the experience against the quote-unquote infidels and heathens in Iberia gave the Spanish a cultural mindset of being chosen to spread both Spanish rule and Christianity. After all, God had just shown his favor to the cause in Spain, so why couldn't they bring the same to America? Bernal Diaz, who fought with Cortes in Mexico, summed it up by saying they had left home to quote, serve God in his majesty, to give light to those who are in darkness, and to grow rich as all men desire to do. End quote. That's just a fancy way of saying what we all learned in school. The conquistadors, or adelantados, came to the new world for glory, God, and gold. Though they always seemed more focused on one of those than the others. I'll let you guess which one. One final aspect to all this that cannot be overstated enough is the biological one. Quite simply, the Spanish did more damage with the germs they brought than with the wars they fought. The Europeans brought with them the crowd diseases unknown to the Amerindians. We are talking here about smallpox, measles, chickenpox, whooping cough, diphtheria, scarlet fever, influenza, etc. These diseases ravaged the Amerindian population, bringing it crashing to the ground and, in combination with Spanish dominion, wiping out whole cultures. 
By the way, if you are like me and always wondered why only Amerindians were ravaged by European diseases, but Europeans weren't ravaged by Amerindian diseases, there are quite a few different answers. One is that the Europeans had been more places. Centuries of warfare, trade, migration across Eurasia had mixed a lot of gene pools together, boosting immune systems compared with the relatively more isolated Amerindians. Second is that Europeans had lived with domesticated animals for millennia and had dealt with the various zoological diseases that jumped over to humans. The Amerindians, on the other hand, had domesticated, depending on the culture, dogs and llamas, but that's about it. Finally, the Europeans lived in dirty, disease-ridden, crowded cities where everyone was routinely exposed to these diseases, unlike the less densely settled Amerindians. The Amerindians may have had the last laugh, though, as it is possible they gave one virulent disease to the Europeans. Syphilis. Now, that has not been conclusively proven and it is still a very controversial topic, but because of the atrocities Europeans would inflict on Native women in particular, I tend to like this idea out of a sheer sense of historic irony. It's also been noted that the Spanish were fortunate that the North American climate was so accommodating to them. They didn't suffer from the illnesses that had the same decimating effect on Europeans who set foot in the more tropical parts of the Caribbean or Africa. All this is not to say that the Spanish conquest of the New World was inevitable, but that they had the mindset, organization, and historical luck on their side for the task. Also, none of this is a guarantee of success. After all, Ponce de Leon was killed in 1521 during a subsequent adventure in Florida and the future southeastern United States. That same fate would be shared a few decades later by the ruthless Hernando de Soto, as well as literally thousands of others. And, as we'll see, some of this quote-unquote conquered territory was only held on by the most tenuous of grasps. FYI, I'm just skimming through about 300 years of Spanish colonial history in the next few episodes, which could probably be a whole podcast series in and of itself. Ah, history. It really is the gift that keeps on giving. Now back to our main purpose. Who the first European to set foot on what would eventually become the state of Arizona is a hard thing to pin down, mainly because the delineation between Arizona and everywhere else is a political line that won't be drawn for another few centuries. But this is why I paused at Ponce de Leon, a man who never stepped foot within a thousand miles of the Sonoran Desert, because one of the main contenders for first European in Arizona was following after the now-deceased Adelantado. In 1527, a one-eyed, red-bearded, haughty swashbuckler named Panfilo de Navarrez was putting together an expedition to establish settlements between the current eastern coast of Mexico and the Cape of La Florida. Joining Navarrez as the second-in-command was 37-year-old Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. Born in 1490 in the Andalusian town of Jerez de Frontera, Cabeza de Vaca was an experienced soldier, having seen action in Italy. He'd also fought to secure the role of Carlos I, better known to us by his other title, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, over the now unified kingdoms of Spain. And for all those Spanish speakers out there, yes, his name literally means cow's head. It was an honorific bestowed on a maternal ancestor who had helped the Christians win a significant victory over the Muslims in the early 1200s by marking a key mountain pass with the skull of a cow. 
Cabeza de Baca was apparently so proud of this that he preferred the name above his father's family name of Vera, though his paternal grandfather had helped conquer the Canary Islands. He was already established in the elite of his home country before coming to the New World to take part in Navarrez's expedition. Nothing went right with the 600-man, five-ship expedition from the start. When the fleet sailed into Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola, a quarter of the prospective settlers decided they would rather take their chances there than in the unknown wilderness to the north, and they all jumped ship. Even after they set sail, following a struggle to get supplies, a hurricane took out two of the ships. In the spring of 1528, the remaining 260 footmen and 40 horsemen disembarked near what historians think was Tampa Bay, and they watched the remaining ships sail away. Navarrez was sending them further north to find better anchorage, with a plan to march overland to meet them. Just so you know, they are never going to see those ships again. What followed were nightmarish months of native attacks, disease, and marches through dense forest and muddy swamps. Finally, in September 1528, somewhere on the coast between Tallahassee and Pensacola, the remaining men constructed five makeshift boats. Each carried a contingent of survivors and rations. The plan was to keep the coast in sight and to make their way toward New Spain and Mexico. But, and you had to see this coming, a storm destroyed every last boat. Cabeza de Vaca and others would wash up on an island beach somewhere near Galveston Island in modern Texas. They apparently named this island, depending on your translation of the Spanish, as Island of Ill-Fate or the more video game sounding Island of Doom. The natives in the area gave them some food and accommodations, but still most of the men did not survive the winter of 1528 and 1529, with some resorting to cannibalism. At this point, Cabeza de Vaca basically went native, integrating himself with the peoples of the area. Various sources disagree if he was a slave or a captive of some kind. During this time, he certainly was tasked with physical labor and followed the native tribes in their seasonal migrations. He also began to pick up phrases and words in several local languages, which made him valuable as a negotiator and trader between tribes, especially the ones who were usually hostile towards each other. He also appears to have become something of a faith healer and mystic, which earned him some cachet among the natives. In 1534, so six years since landing near Tampa Bay, Cabeza de Vaca and the three other survivors of the expedition managed to steal away from their current overseers and headed southwest, looking to make their way to Spanish-held territory. It's during the course of these wanderings, which would continue for almost another two years, that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions, sometimes accompanied by local natives they encountered, may have clipped the southeast corner of Arizona. There's no agreement on that last point, and some surmise that he turned south while still in current New Mexico, but it is a possibility. In early 1536, Cabeza de Vaca, now tattooed, dressed in native clothing, and accompanied by hundreds of Amerindians, would surprise Alcaraz and his Spanish slavers near Sinaloa. On July 24, 1536, on the eve of the Feast of St. James, the patron saint of all Spain, the four would enter Mexico City to great acclaim and amazement. Their long journey was finally over. While in Mexico City, the four would give accounts of their travels. Though they were not the exaggerated stuff of legends that others would present, it did fire the imagination of several, especially the bits about rumors of possible other great cities to the north. 
Cabeza de Vaca would return to Spain the following year, turning down a request from Antonio de Mendoza, Viceroy of New Spain, to mount further expeditions of exploration. In 1540, Cabeza de Vaca returned to the New World, this time as governor of Rio de la Plata in South America. However, he would be ousted by his subjects and sent back to Spain on trumped-up charges in 1544 due to him being too sympathetic to the native Amerindians for their tastes. As fascinating as Cabeza de Vaca's story is, you won't have failed to notice that Arizona was only a small, questionable plot point in it. But if you can draw a circuitous line between Ponce de Leon and Cabeza de Vaca, it turns out that you can draw a direct one between Cabeza de Vaca's experience and the first real explorations of Arizona. Because one of the three survivors of his expedition was a man named Esteban. He was not Spanish, but a Moorish slave, the property of one of the other survivors. Esteban, also known as Estebanico, or Little Esteban, was a black Muslim native of Azamor on the west coast of Morocco, who probably was taken into slavery only a few years before Cabeza de Vaca's expedition. After Cabeza de Vaca declined further exploration, Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza saw Esteban as a convenient source of information and offered to buy him. His owner declined, but offered to loan his slave to Mendoza. Paired with Esteban was a Franciscan friar named Marcos de Niza, a native of Aquitaine in southwestern France who had been in the New World for about a decade. Niza came highly recommended from the bishop in Mexico City, and so was tapped by Viceroy Mendoza to spearhead further explorations north. The two, along with a few hundred Amerindian allies, set out in 1538, heading northward. Over the course of the next year, they would work their way up into the current Mexican state of Sonora. At some point in early March 1539, Nisa decided to stop and learn more about the surrounding area, but sent Esteban ahead. Since the Moor was illiterate, he was instructed to send word via a cross should he discover anything significant. The larger the cross he sent back, the more significant the find. This was a fateful decision, both for Esteban and the Spaniards who would follow him. The sources are a little muddled at this point, but sometime after the Moor had departed, he sent back a cross as tall as a man, with word that he learned that in 30 days he could reach the first of seven cities in a land called Cibola. The slave apparently set off to do just that, with Niza some weeks behind him. And this journey is said to have taken the Moor up the eastern edge of Arizona, though that is far from proven. It's hard to say with exactness what happened next, but the broad strokes are Esteban, with a retinue of Amerindians, eventually reached Cibola. But then Nisa, following behind, received shocking news. Esteban was dead. We don't have a solid explanation of what happened, but the inhabitants of Cibola had shot the moor full of arrows. You'll find a few theories out there as to why. Either the natives thought Esteban, a black man, was a liar when he told them of his masters who were all white. Or the moor had tried to gain their trust using some of the trappings of a faith healer, bells and feathers, that he had learned from Cabeza de Vaca, but this backfired when they thought him an imposter. Still, other accounts say Esteban acted like an overlord, demanding from them women and turquoise. Another plausible explanation is they simply saw him as a spy or advanced party for a conquering people, and he had to go. 
Either way, Esteban met his end in Cibola, and that was the end of it. Except not so much. Because Nisa returned immediately to Mexico City after receiving the news. Once there, he began to weave a fabulous narrative about Esteban's fate, and especially about the magnificent, rich cities of Cibola. In a written account to Viceroy Mendoza, Nisa described how he had traveled to glimpse from afar the city where Esteban had died. He did not go further to avoid meeting the same fate, he explained. But, from what he could see, he described a city of stone houses with flat roofs that was larger than Mexico City and was, quote, the greatest and best of the discoveries, end quote. And this city, he had on good authority, was the least of the seven cities of Cibola. Now, most modern scholars agree that Nisa may have gone into Arizona, probably up the San Pedro River Valley, but certainly never got anywhere near Cibola. Some also followed the assessment of Coronado and his men that the friar was lying through his teeth about everything. However, Nisa readily agreed to be part of the next expedition, so it's possible that he simply heard grand tales, believed them wholeheartedly, and only lied about seeing all this for himself. He should have kept in mind the old Russian proverb of trust but verify, especially when it comes to mythical cities of gold in North America. Nisa's report set off a firestorm in Mexico City, and especially intrigued Viceroy Mendoza. Mendoza was a political enemy of Hernán Cortés and was always seeking to outflank his rival. Could this be his own Tenochtitlan to conquer and become more celebrated and rich than the famous conquistador? And could the seven cities mentioned in Cibola actually be the seven cities of Antilia, said to have been founded by seven Portuguese bishops who'd fled across the Atlantic from the Muslims in the 700s AD? Nisa's report had to be followed up on. For this, Mendoza turned to Francisco Vazquez de Coronado, the governor of Nueva Galicia, a territory covering a portion of west-central Mexico just north of Mexico City. Coronado was born in Salamanca, Spain in 1510, and had arrived in the New World at the age of 25 as part of Viceroy Mendoza's entourage. Mendoza and Coronado were close friends, and their fathers were political allies, which is part of why he had been installed as governor. Coronado gathered anywhere between 200 and 400 men, more appear to have joined as he marched, with up to 1,300 Amerindian allies in addition to hundreds of muleteers, cooks, retainers, as well as women and children. And this is where the history of Arizona from the European perspective really begins. Because the various armies of the Coronado expedition would pass through the future state a total of 12 times, with six of those being in 1540 alone. Coronado himself started in February 1540, leading an advanced force of roughly 100 men and Amerindian allies. The main body would lag behind by some months. Also among this advance group was Nisa and other Franciscan friars ready to save souls and or greet the seven bishops of Antilia. As an aside, on this march Coronado is said to have taken with him a gold bejeweled crucifix given to him by Cortes himself in 1520. This cross would later be discovered during an illegal dig in 1912 in southern Utah and identified by a young boy scout named Henry Jones Jr., who would spend the next 30 years trying to ensure it ended up in a museum. Wait, uh, let me double-check the source for that last bit. Anyway, Coronado's route is still the subject of much speculation, but one theory that has gathered a lot of consensus is that he marched up the San Pedro River Valley in southeast Arizona. 
Another possibility is that he crossed into the state at the current site of Douglas. U.S. Highway 191, which runs up the eastern spine in Arizona, is also known as the Coronado Trail because some historians believe he followed roughly its course up the state, though it is possible that he also went up the western border of New Mexico. If he did march up Arizona, then somewhere north of St. John's, the expedition turned east towards Cibola, following the Zuni River, a tributary of the Little Colorado River. It was not an easy journey, as supplies dwindled and several men died from hunger and thirst. Coronado was a novice adelantado, and most of the men for his expedition were strangers to the New World. It was an army starting to border on desperation that finally made it to their destination. What they encountered gravely disappointed them. There was no magnificent city overflowing with turquoise gold and gems. Instead, in July 1540, they found Hawaka, a multi-story adobe city on the present border of New Mexico of perhaps 100 families. The natives, called Zuni by the Spanish, had heard of their coming and had evacuated all the women and children. Only fighting men remained. At this point, the men and Coronado rained down curses on Nisa. The Adelantado sent him packing back to Mexico City with a note to Mendoza that said, quote, He has not told the truth in a single thing, he said, but everything is the opposite of what he related, except the name of the cities and the large stone houses, end quote. Still, Coronado's men were starving, and he felt he had no choice but to make contact and exact tribute from these soon-to-be vassals. As part of this initial encounter, Coronado went through the ceremonial reading of the requerimiento, or the requirement. Written in Spain in either 1512 or 1513, this document was, as the name suggests, a requirement for all native peoples the Spanish encountered. The Recurrimiento commanded the Amerindians to, quote, acknowledge the Catholic Church as the ruler and superior of the whole world and the high priest called Pope, and in his name, the King and Queen of Spain, end quote. If they did so, the document promised the natives that they would be well treated. But if they did not, or delayed in doing so, the document went on to warn that, quote, with the help of God, we shall forcefully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and their highnesses, end quote. Now, a few things about this. First off, none of these people who were asked to submit to the requerimiento were literate in the European sense of the word. So the meaning behind this ceremony of a bearded stranger unrolling a piece of animal hide and speaking loudly was certainly lost on them. In fact, there is a charming little anecdote from roughly 150 years after Coronado's time, when a Jesuit missionary wrote a letter and, before sending it with a native messenger, read it aloud to him. Once the messenger delivered the letter, the recipient also read it aloud, and the messenger was apparently astonished and amazed about the word-for-word -word recital after the recipient just looked at the squiggles on the document. Secondly, even if they had been literate, the Requerimento is a 900-word legal document written by bureaucrats back at the home office. Most of us would want to run such a thing by a lawyer first before even thinking about signing on the dotted line. Third, many times the Spanish only adhered to the letter of the law and would have the Requerimento read, but in Spanish. That's right, they told the Amerindians to submit to God and the king in a language they didn't understand. And in those cases, such as with Coronado, when there was an interpreter present, they had the task of translating that European legalese into concepts the natives could understand and, 
well, let's just say there's a reason the phrase lost in translation exists. Bartolomeo de las Casas, an early and fierce opponent of Spanish treatment of the natives, said of the effectiveness of the requerimiento that he didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm of the personal opinion that many tribes that quote-unquote agreed to the document mostly did so only after standing around in bewilderment until someone whispered, just smile and nod. The Zunis on this occasion, however, rejected the Spanish and their requirement. It was the time of their sacred summer ceremonies, which these bearded, smelly strangers threatened to jeopardize. They drew a line in the sand using sacred cornmeal as a symbol to keep out. When the Spanish were not repelled by it, the Zuni began firing arrows. A short but intense battle ensued. Coronado himself, who stuck out like a sore thumb due to his plume-gilded armor, was knocked unconscious and nearly died as he was pelted by rocks. Only his helmet and the protection of his aide-de-camp, Garcia Lopez de Cárdenas, saved him. The battle lasted for roughly an hour and was won thanks to the Amerindian allies the Spanish had brought with them. Inside the city, the men found what they craved. Corn, beans, poultry, and other foods to sustain them. But not a hint was seen of what they started out seeking. Mendoza had invested tens of thousands of pesos in the expedition. Many of the men had borrowed heavily to outfit themselves. Everyone was expecting a payday equal to that of Cortez when he conquered the Aztecs. Niza was probably very fortunate to have left when he did. From his new base in Cibola, Coronado sent out smaller expeditions to survey the area and follow up on leads for where these fabulously wealthy cities were supposed to be. Among these was Pedro de Tovar, who headed westward with a small detachment of 25 men and a friar, following up on rumors of warlike people in high villages in a place called Tusayan. Tovar and his men would climb onto the Colorado Plateau and find the painted desert that sits in northeastern Arizona. Here also he found the Hopi people, living on their mesas, in a manner similar to the Zunis. The Hopis had already heard what happened to Cibola and denied Tovar and his men entry. You can probably guess what goes down next. That's right, Tovar and his men fought a pitched battle and may have destroyed the Hopi settlement on Antelope Mesa. What is certain is that the Hopis were forced to let the Spanish in. For now. When Tovar returned to Cibola, he also brought reports of a large river even further west in the Hopi Mesas. If the river was navigable, that might be a key to linking up with New Spain and a sea expedition that had also been dispatched. To follow up on these rumors, Coronado sent out Garcia López de Cárdenas, the aide-de-camp who had saved his life during the siege of Cibola. In November 1540, Cárdenas and a detachment set off to find this river. Traveling with guides, they crossed a high plain he described as, quote, covered with low and twisted pines, end quote. Twenty days past the Hopi Mesas, they came to a stop. They had to, because Cardenas and his men had just become the first Europeans to gaze upon the Grand Canyon. They arrived at the canyon's edge around Morin Point, inside of today's National Park, midway between the entrances. For three days they explored the area, trying to find a way around. Finally, two adventurous men climbed down over the edge. They went maybe a third of the way down. When they returned, they reported the river was as mighty as the natives said, and that stone pillars, which looked from the top to be about the height of a man, were actually, quote, taller than the Great Tower of Seville, end quote. For comparison, that tower, the Geralda, stood about 320 feet tall. Told, and possibly lied to, that there was no water for several days heading west, 
Cardenas decided it was best to turn back. Since the motto of the Adelantados wasn't glory, God, gold, and tourism, Cardenas could only see the canyon as an impenetrable obstacle. He could not foresee that in a few centuries, people would come from all around the world just to glimpse what he had been fortunate enough to catch sight of. While Coronado was sending out these explorative feelers, another support expedition sent by Viceroy Mendoza was also making its own discoveries of Arizona. Remember that sea expedition I just mentioned? This is where they fit in. Hernando de Alarcón, working for Mendoza, launched from Acapulco in May 1540 to head north and see if they could hook up with Coronado. Now that may sound strange to us, but the expedition was working under the assumption that Cibla was located near a large body of water and could potentially be reached by boat. Now, the Spanish had discovered Baja California and the Gulf of California early on, but it wasn't until just a year prior that a man named Francisco de Ulloa, an ally of Cortez, sailed to the head of the Gulf and found that, contrary to popular belief, Baja California was not an island. Arlarcón and his ship also managed to make it to where the Colorado dumps into the Gulf of California, but couldn't sail up the river with its strong current. So in August, he and a contingent of 20 men started upstream in two small vessels, eventually encountering the Quechan, or Yuma, tribes living along the river. From them he heard tales of Esteban and his fate, but learned that Cibola could only be reached overland and was a good month's march away. In September, Arlarcón would launch up the river again, maybe reaching as high as the Needles, until rapids turned him back. Near this spot, he carved his name into a tree and buried letters and jars at its base. These letters described Arlarcón's journeys and findings, and that he couldn't wait any longer for word from Coronado. They were later found by another member of Coronado's expedition, making his own excursions, Captain Melchor Díaz. Diaz had been part of an advanced expedition sent ahead of Coronado in late 1539 to try and verify some of Nisa's claims. He did not return in time for Coronado's departure in February 1540, but met the Adelantado as he journeyed towards Cibola. After they made it to the Zuni Pueblos, Diaz was sent south again, partially to try and link up with Arlarcón to check on his progress, but also partially to escort Nisa out of Coronado's sight as quickly as possible. After journeying south again with the hated friar as far as Uras in Sonora, he and two dozen or so men started heading northwest. Dios would learn in December 1540 that he just missed Arlarcón, but with the letters showing that the sea expedition had no hope of reaching Coronado, Dios decided to do some exploring. Eventually, he and his men would cross the Colorado River on rafts and spend a few days exploring the deserts on the opposite side before returning. Diaz does receive credit for giving the river one of its first European names, Rio de Tison. A Tison is a firebrand, and the river was so named because the Amerindians living along its banks used firebrands to keep themselves warm. Diaz would be killed by his own lands in a freak accident on the journey back, so he wouldn't have a chance to follow up on any of his discoveries. While all this exploration was going on, Coronado and his men were making themselves extremely unpopular among the Puebloan peoples in New Mexico. Following explorations further east, Coronado had moved his main camp to a spot on the Rio Grande, near present-day Albuquerque, which they called Tiguesque. Here they forced the natives to provide them with lodgings, as well as gave increasing demands for blankets, buffalo robes, firewood, and food. Basically everything the Third Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is meant to protect you from. 
By now, the full expedition had arrived, and the addition of literally thousands of mouths, not to mention their livestock, put a tremendous strain on the resource-strapped natives. The cherry on top of all this was that the soldiers were not above raping native women and committing wanton acts of violence. But Coronado and his men were still hungry for word of something better than the pitiful native villages they had found so far. They began hearing tales of a place called Kivira, supposed to be a magnificent rich city further east. A group of men abducted four natives, including one they called Bigote because of his unusual mustache. Bigote was tortured by having dogs repeatedly sicked on him until he confessed to having several treasures from Kivira. News of what happened to Bigote incensed the natives, who turned on the Spanish. From December 1540 to March 1541, an incredibly bitter series of insurrections occurred. One particularly charming incident involves a group of Tiwa men who killed 40 horses and other pack animals and then holed themselves up in a pueblo to resist the Spanish retaliation. The Spanish managed to break into the building and light fires to smoke them out. Under the sign of the cross, the defenders were guaranteed safe passage out of the building if they came out unarmed. However, instead, they were taken prisoners and brought before Gardenus, now returned from his exploration of the Grand Canyon. Gardenus ordered that an initial group of 50 natives to be tied to stakes in the ground and lit on fire. Their comrades, upon seeing this, rose up and tried to fortify the tent they were in, but then they were brutally slain by the Spanish lances. The Tigues War ended with Coronado's men destroying as many as 13 villages and served as a good example of how violent and duplicitous the Spanish occupiers could be. The only upside for Coronado is that in the end, someone agreed to talk. Among the three other captives taken with Bigote was the Turk, a Plains Indian who was given the nickname because his complexion made him look Middle Eastern to the Spanish. Through the various language barriers, the Turk professed to know the road to Kivira. He also spun numerous stories about how the land sat aside a massive river some five to six miles wide, with fish as big as horses, and ships manned by twenty oarsmen with golden eagles at the prow. The lord of the land was also said to take naps under a tree hung with numerous golden bells, and the people ate from dishes made of silver and gold. More sure now than ever that wealth awaited them, Coronado and his men set off east. They began to encounter nomadic peoples, but nothing like what they were promised. As they progressed, Coronado grew worried about their store of provisions and sent most of his men back to New Mexico, proceeding forward with 30 horsemen, a friar, an Indian guide, and the Turk. The latter was now dragged along in chains. It didn't help that somewhere south of Amarillo, Texas, the tribes they encountered told them that the Turk was leading them the wrong way, Kivira was to the north, not to the southeast. On June 29, 1541, the party crossed the Arkansas River somewhere in present-day central Kansas. There was no Kivira, at least not the one the Turk had told them about. Much like Nisa, he had the name right, but really nothing else. When confronted, the Turk confessed. The Puebloans in New Mexico had convinced him to lead them, as Coronado later wrote, quote, to a place where we and our horses would starve to death. End quote. As you can imagine, the Turk did not survive his deception long. One night, the shackled prisoner was set upon by several men and strangled. The expedition then slunk back to Tiguesque and, following a cold winter, then made their way back to Mexico in 1542. And that was that. Seriously. 
The failure of the Coronado expedition led to no one really adventuring into Arizona or New Mexico for another generation. Remember that these weren't explorers trying to accumulate knowledge. They were conquerors and businessmen trying to strike it rich. By the metrics of the day, the mission was an abject failure. Coronado himself was also partially broken. The fighting in Cibola and Tiguesque had given him a probable concussion. He would also face a formal investigation into his management of the expedition, which, though he was mostly exonerated, stripped him of his governorship of Nueva Galicia. The Turk didn't manage to kill him, but, for the moment, the Spanish were gone. It would be more than 40 years before another recorded incursion by Europeans into Arizona would happen. Join me next week as we watch the Spanish come back. More exploration would prove that there was silver in them thar hills, which would set off the first concerted, though admittedly weak, effort to settle New Mexico and start inching closer toward Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.